This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. And so uh, this morning I'm going to talk about Revive Us Lord. Revive Us Lord. And we're busy with a series of, on discipleship. And uh, I, th- I think our biggest challenge as the church as a whole, especially in the West, is... You know, not to go to church, but to become the church, to be the church. Uh, we say, I'm going to go to church on Sunday, but that is so doctrinally wrong. You don't go to church, you are the church. <laughs> and when you and I recognize that we are God's answer to the world, obviously in Jesus, not in ourselves, not because we are fancy, not because we are great, but <clears throat> because God has sent us, he's commissioned us to live differently. Uh, the only challenge is so many people come with a cultural Christianity. So I want to I wanna be an Afrikaans uh, Christian or I want to be a Zulu Christian. But you are a Christian. And that means that we have a standard to adhere to. That's a place to live to. And that's why uh, our mandate is in Matthew 28 verse 18. And Pastor George spoke a bit about that last week. Is to go into the world and make disciples of the nations. Um, and that nations is the ethnic groups. It's every culture, every tribe, every person will worship the Lord one day. There's going to be some loud ones, you know, the Nigerians. There's going to be some softly spoken ones. Um, I, I want to be with the noisy ones in heaven. I mean, anyone else that wants to join the noisy ones, you know, because there's going to be shouting. There's going to be proclaimed like, like the same way you maybe shouted in front of that television yesterday. Uh, I mean, television yesterday, you know, that you just like brought your whole, you know, so many people, whether it's rugby or soccer, lots of people say, I am not passionate, but you are just, just talk about that thing, you know, maybe that food or that holiday or that thing. Every person, there's something inside of you that, that makes you passionate. You know, there's something that you get turned on to. You think like, whoa, you know, maybe it's that, you know, I remember my grandfather, my, my father did, wasn't a very emotional person, but until he got grandkids, whoa, gonna. Then he was like all over the show on the floor. The kids were all over him. You know, they, he just, we were never allowed to eat sweets before lunch or dinner. He just fed our kids sweets all the time. I said like, where's all the rules? Where's all the laws? You know, now everything is forgotten, you know, and he says, no, it's a grandfather's privilege. You know, I'm saying you, you playing into the privileged generation, you know, it's this privilege and that privilege, you know, you, you now entitlement is all over the place, you know. But just watch you with people when they become grandfathers and grandmothers, you know. They just go over it. But, but there's some stuff that, that really sort of suddenly makes you get excited. All of us, there's something that you get excited about. But in the same way, God wants us to get excited about why we're here. You're here with a mission. You are, you're here sent and being, you've been commissioned by Jesus 2,000 years ago. So we're not here just to try and be Christians. We're not just here to try and live out this Christian existence. We are here commissioned by God. And that means part of that commission is discipleship. And discipleship means that I can't switch God on and off. I can't go like, oh, Lord, Sunday, Sunday. Sunday is like, Jesus, Monday. And Sunday, Jesus, now I'm going to get excited about Jesus. And then Monday, 
And then Sunday again, oh, you know, there it goes again. And that's how many people live with Christ. But um, Jesus said, go, go into the world, make disciples. You know, uh, John Yip always challenges me. And I read a book, a book about a guy that said, you know, from mega church to movement, basically, where he talks about how do the West transition from just being a church event driven to real discipleship. And then he gives us stats. He says to baptize one evangelical Christian in America would cost $1.5 million. The cost on running stuff and events is so high. But we've forgotten why God has called us, and that is to make disciples. And that means that you and I have to live a life that is very different. They went from house to house, breaking bread, and we're going to break bread today. Breaking bread in the apostles' doctrine. But it means I can't just live for myself. I'm going to need to learn to have an open life. I'm going to need to live to impart to other people. And so what is this revival concept? It's a people saturated with God. It's a people desperate for God, a hunger for God, a wave of holy people searching for God. It starts with the people turning back their hearts to God. It's when, when, we, when we start to cry out to God and say, God, I am not satisfied because I realize that my culture cannot redeem me. And I'm not saying, hey, stop doing barbecue or stop, stop doing. There are great traditions in every culture. But we must be very careful not to make our culture Christian in the sense of like saying this, this, this is now Christianity. Is, I'm, I'm coming with my culture into Christianity. No, there's a... There's a Christian way of doing things. And I don't know about you, when I read the Bible, I am challenged. I'm challenged because I realized where I am and what the Bible talks about is a complete different way of living. It's a place of saying, Lord, let your kingdom come first. Let your kingdom come first. And there's a couple of people that we've been speaking about. And the first one I want to just read, just across some of the things that stirred their hearts. Because uh, the topic this morning is revive us, Lord. <laughs> bring, bring a revival in our hearts. And so Nehemiah, who uh, was called to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, because he saw the wall was in ruins. And the city was in ruins. And he was living in the, in the king's palace. He was a cupbearer. He was so excited. He had everything going for him. And then he realized, like, sure, how, how can I be satisfied with where I'm at? I can continue with my life. I can... Live a comfortable life and keep on doing that and, and, and still be a good Christian, still go to church and I tithe and, and I'm very good, you know, because wow, at least the professional people there at the office, they do all the Christian work, you know. The professional people there, the small group leader, oh, he's fantastic, you know. And, and so, so when I do my little contribution, then I am, you know, that's great, but then you can still have your heart far from that because just giving is not going to change anything in your heart. Would you agree? And so he starts here with Nehemiah 1 verse 4. He says, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. This was because he saw Jerusalem in ruins. I was fasting and praying before God of heaven. I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven. Oh, great and awesome God, you keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. 
Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah doesn't just say, oh, Lord, judge these people. He says, God, we've become a wicked generation. Our fathers, Lord, we have sinned before you. Lord, extend your mercy to us. Lord, bring your favor upon our nation. Bring your favor upon Stellenbosch. Bring your favor upon this family of mine. Lord, I'm standing in the gap. Hear our prayers. But most people today in the West, we just pray for, oh Lord, please be with me. Oh Lord, please help me. Please protect me. Please Lord, um, do this for me. Please Lord, I need a little breakthrough of that. Lord, that means that we're not, we're not going to see revival unless there's a group of people beginning to cry out to God for much more than just their own prosperity, their own breakthrough, their own comfort. I think there's a lot of prayers that people are praying, Lord, please make me comfortable. (laughs) Then I will do that. But the Lord is not really interested in comfortable prayers. The story of the Bible is God coming to a group of people and saying, I'm going to make you when you follow me, but I'm going to make you very uncomfortable. He never promised comfort to his people, but he did promise one thing. He says, I'm going to be your exceedingly great reward. Moses, when you go, Abram, when you go, when you start to follow, when you, I'm, I'm going to be your reward. Not the breakthrough, not the things that I give you. I want to be your reward because when you, once you've tasted of God's goodness and who he is, wow. Listen to what Joel talks about of the army of the Lord. And he says, now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. Say all your heart. Okay, I'm going to get some amens here this morning because I know you, I know, I know you were not just sitting in front of that television yesterday and say, I wish, I wish my PB will score a try, you know, my PB, oh, what's his surname? I can't even pronounce his surname. No, no, you just sit there and say, oh, let me think that this is going to be a great game. No, no, no. When you woke up yesterday morning, I'm just talking to the people that, you know, maybe you watched Liverpool, I don't know, never stand alone, always stand together. What's this? What? Yeah, yeah, okay, you know, never going to be alone, you know, maybe Liverpool, you know, or maybe that sport. But, but you didn't just sit there and think like, oh, you know, no, no, you, you experienced a semi-revival in front of that little box yesterday, you know. You prepare yourself. Some people have marinated the the food, the the, the um, you know the meat for five days already. You know, you know you 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 need to revive that thing and pray for it and pray for resurrection. You know, once you get to that meat, you know. Some of you are like you you you've been preparing yourself. I I we live there in Yonkersuk, you know. And so I I decided like just an hour before the time, quickly going, you know. To do last minute shopping, the chips or whatever and all that stuff. Because we were going to buy. And then, true, you should have seen the queues. Everybody was just like, hey, everybody's checking there. You know, everybody's ready because they, they've been preparing themselves for this thing coming, you know. And um, we, we're going to talk a little bit about that. But so he says, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. The Lord says, don't bring your outward stuff. 
I want your heart. But you need to bring all of that. God doesn't know uh, 20% surrendering of our hearts. He says, bring it. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. A great offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He says, for he is gracious and merciful. The reason why we can bring our hearts to God is because of his grace, because of his mercy. He's slow to anger. He's great. He's of great kindness. And so we come to God because it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Amen? We come to him because he is merciful, because he is kind. But the devil tricks us into thinking like, oh, you know, no, no, let's, let's just play church, church. Let's just, let's just, let's just do it on the outward, you know. Let's just, let's bring our garments, you know. And when we walk in the church and, how's it brother? Oh, blessed. How's it sister? Fantastic. The Lord is good all the time, all the time. The Lord is good, yeah. And then we have this jargon, but then we don't like, when you arrange your heart, it means you bring all the good and all the bad. <laughs> you become vulnerable to God. And this is the army that God is raising up. He says, come, but bring your heart, bring your heart. So the first thing that if we want to have a revival, in our, it starts in our hearts, a rendering, a crying out to God. Lord, we're not satisfied. I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. If you are satisfied, you are in trouble. <laughs> I'm not talking about spiritual ambition or driving. It's just satisfied with the condition of your heart. Because there's not one perfect person. I mean, <laughs> and the good news is that God is in control. And the good news is there's always going to be change. And the amazing news is the change will start right with you and right with me. <laughs> Thanks, George. I'm going to preach to you because George is the only one giving amens this morning. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, good news, you're going to change. <laughs> so far, so good. Okay, but so, a passion. The second thing is, sure, if we want to know God, then God would raise up one person. Especially in the Old Testament, we have these amazing people that would cry out to God. And then God would come. God would actually render his heart. He would open up his heart. And so one of them is Elijah. And Elijah was this weird guy that was a prophet. But he just wanted to follow God all the way. And so in First Kings 18, this is another prayer. So we're focusing on some prayers of people that really were not satisfied with where they're at. They, they, they said, Lord, we, we want to know you. We want to, we want to follow you with all of our hearts. So hear me, oh Lord, hear me. <laughs> hear me, Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. So what is a revival about? It's not about the supernatural. It's not about the blessings of God. Revival is about people turning their hearts back to God. <laughs> You are the Lord God. Then the fire of the Lord fell. Now this is where all the Baal prophets were. And uh, a lot, hundreds of them were standing there. And Elijah was calling everyone together. The king, everyone. And said, okay, we, we, we're going to have a showdown. We, we're going to, we need to settle some things. Because it's either going to be God. Or it's going to be all these Baal prophets. It's all going to be all these other idols, you know. 
And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord is God! The Lord is God! That's revival. When everybody in the nation begins to say, The Lord is God! The Lord is God! It's not when we just play church, church. And we come in a holy huddle, we feel good about ourselves, and then we move back because, hey, we've done God a favor. It's when you begin to render your heart. And so this was the passion of Elijah's heart. He says, God, that everyone will know that you are God. That's the cry of our hearts. That's what we cry out for. And then the fire comes. He actually threw water on the sacrifice and all that stuff just to make sure That when the fire comes, it's not going to be something false. It's going to be God. And then it comes, they kill all the prophets. There's just like a massive showdown. But it's not about the supernatural. It's about the fact that God is God. You know, you'll see a lot in what's happening in our nation. There's a, there's a massive split coming between even the conserv, in the conservative church, between those who stand for God's word and those who compromise. And I'm saying it with a lot of respect, but here out of our theology department, the most liberal nonsense comes that it's got nothing to do with the word of God. You see, first years coming into the theology department, loving God passionately, and at the third year, they don't believe God exists anymore. But see, that's when you render your head, but you don't render your heart. Then theology becomes destructive. Because you teach people to just think that they're good enough. To think that a degree will change the world. No, it's when people render their heart to God. So, so what is that passion in your heart and my heart for God's glory in our nation? God, we want people to know that you are God. We want people to fall on their faces to say you are God. You are God. You are living. You're not dead. And so to go on a little bit and focus in on what Elijah did, because Elijah, I always have this picture, my granddad had this old car, a Dodge, you know, and a Valiant. Now, some of you have got no ideas what that is, but it was these old cars, these beautiful old cars. If you go to Somerset West here in the main way, there's some of those old cars, but they had these big fins at the back, you know, these beautiful big stuff. They didn't have like two seats in front. They had one big seat, you know. You could get 20 people in there. The whole family could drive, you know. If you if you wanted to go around the corner, you really had to take it like wide because the whole guy, car drifted like this now. But I, I used to drive with my grandfather, you know, when he was 80 years old. He would still drive, you know. And I, you know, everybody, when my grandfather would drive, would phone each other and tell each other, get off the road because there's somebody occupying the road. You know, he couldn't see so properly anymore, but when he decided he's going to drive to town, then all the grandchildren would be in there, all the dogs, everyone. It was like a massive caravel combi. You know, there was like 30 people could fit in there. Sometimes we even took sheep with us to the, to the, to the town, you know. 
So we drove this car, but with his fins. And that's the picture that I have of Elijah. Elijah had this massive beard hanging to the ground. And, and when Elijah finally ran the story that we're going to read, he would take the beard and split it in two. And then he'd throw one half over the one side and the one half over the other side. And when, when he started to run like that, then these, this beard would fly like these fins. You know, that's where these people got this picture of, 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 the cars, you know, so you can get a lot of out, of out of scripture if you do design work for cars and all that stuff. But so, <clears throat> moving right along in First Kings 18, verse 41. And so, <clears throat> there was this King Ahab and Jezebel, and Ahab wasn't really a leader. Jezebel was this manipulative, controlling figure. And, um, and so, a- Elijah would hide away for a couple of years, and he said, there's going to be no rain until I say so again, you know. Wow, powerful statement. And so now Elijah comes back, suddenly appears again on the scene, and Ahab the king is there, and the Baal prophets, all these, there was this massive showdown, there's a cleansing of the nation, um, uh, turning back to God, and now there's this issue about rain, because rain is a very spiritual issue. Um, there's a lot of things. Okay, so Elijah said to Ahab in verse 41, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So what happens is Elijah has obviously been praying. He says, I've, I've heard a sound. There's the sound of the abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, go up now, look towards the sea. And so he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. It's a beautiful picture of the church and a people that have been surrendering to God, have been crying out to God and say, God, the first time I'm not just going to give up. But so what he does is he sends his servant because he says, I've heard the sound. And because I've heard the sound, I am not going to just look at the circumstance around me. But what he did is he went down like a lady in those times would give birth. And he went down basically like, like this and he started to pray. And so now he says to his servant, go and look, you know. I'm standing here on the mountain. I've, I've heard the sound. I've, I've heard it. It's done. But the fact that I've just heard and spoken about it, that's not enough. I need to actually stand in the gap. I'm going to, I'm going to start to pray. Cause now he says to the king, go and, you go and eat, you go and make ready. You, you just go on with your job, but, but I've got something else in my heart because, hey, we've just ma- had this massive breakthrough. The ball prophets are dead. Everybody knows he is God. He is God. But Elijah doesn't stop there. He doesn't go up to eat and drink and be merry. And just be excited about life. He says there's rain coming. And I've heard it. But I've not seen it yet. And so he goes down and he begins to pray. And he begins to intercede. And he begins to pray. And seven times. Every time the, the, the servant comes back and says there's nothing. Then Elijah says go again. Go again. Go again. And he begins to pray. And he begins to pray. Seven times. You know how many of us would give up after the first time? How many of us have sometimes prayed for a family member and after the third time, you just like, oh no, it's not going to happen. How many of you have prayed for the nation and you think like, ah, oh. and this morning you just wake up again and say, oh, back to trouble, back to stuff. But Elijah could see. 
Verse 44, then he came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. And so he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. So so after seven times, he only sees a little cloud, (laughs) a little hand, a little, a little breakthrough. He says, go to the king. He says, you better go down. Ahab, you better make ready. Things are happening. Prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. And now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind. And there was a heavy rain. And so Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. And then the hand of the Lord, say the hand of the Lord, came upon Elijah. And he girded up his loins. He took all of his dress and he just says, hey, let's run. And he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. He outran the chariots. The horses, the chariots. I can just like, you know, this. There was a Bidi Gonzalez. I don't know if you know that. You know, that, that little yellow, what was his name? Was it Bidi Gonzalez? Something like that. Huh? Speedy Gonzalez. Bidi, same thing, man. All the older people know exactly what I'm talking about. All the young people are like, what? You know? Uh, you know, so this thing that could just run and then his, his wheels, his, his legs went like, just went like wheels and then like, just went for it, you know? That was Elijah. So Elijah outran the chariots. Outran the king so he got there first because of the hand of the Lord that was upon him. There's not many people that can say that the hand of the Lord is upon our church. The hand of the Lord is upon our nation. So he heard the sound. He prayed persistently. And so there will be no revival if we just try to do nice structures. It's when a people start to pray to God. There'll be no revival in your life. And your revival in your life is equal to your prayer life. And I have to confess, I, I, I like a lot of stuff. I, I like to get into stuff and I'm a good starter. But just to persist, I'm not good at that. you know, Because my main gifting is to be an encourager and to motivate people. So I can, I can go into a situation and start a fire. But to keep that fire going, oh, that's a challenge, you know. I, I have to have new stuff. And so I'm, I'm not naturally good at praying for hours. You know, I get bored. I just like, but the Lord is challenging me. Say, are you willing to persist? Are you, are you willing to birth what, what's on my heart? First to start in your life. No, but I pray three minutes a day because I'm so busy. You know, there's a guy, Dr. Yonggi Cho from South Korea. He's got a church, I think he's, Retired now, but he, he started a church with over a million people in Seoul, South Korea. And they asked him one day, they said, like, Yo, you've got such a busy day. How, how do you cope? He says, well, if I'm going to have a busy day, I wake up an hour earlier to pray more because I need God more today. So I wake up at four or at three then. But see, the church is dead because the church is not praying. There will be no revival in your life if you don't have a prayer life. You're playing a game with God. If you're not standing before him, day and night, crying out to the Lord. Yes, do we need to work? Yes. Well, well, I don't have six hours a day. I'm not talking about six hours. I'm talking about 20 minutes, effective, fervent prayer a day. Start with 20 minutes. Cry out to God, but not just for your own things. Say, God, I want to know people that knows their God. I want to know that everyone will know that you are God. 
Sure. There will be no revival without prayer. There can be no proper discipleship without prayer. And so the problem with our non-discipleship culture and our event orientation is that we've lost our passion. We realize like everyone should be a minister. Everyone. Everything you do must be birthed in prayer. Don't do anything in your life. And I'm not talking about just coming to church and praying for people in the altar call or standing at the usher. I'm talking about tomorrow morning when you work, walk into your workspace. Say, God, you have placed me here and I want to see your kingdom come. I remember I, I worked in Somerset West for four years. And um, there was only two of us that I think really knew the Lord. And we just came together every day and we prayed. Just 15 minutes, we just started to pray. We started a bit of a discipleship group right there. So I want to encourage you, if you're working somewhere, find two or three other believers and just start to pray with them just once a week. Say, hey, let's pray together. Let's pray for our company. And I'd, I had a boss that was not a Christian. And after four years, when I had to, when I felt God called me to, to start to work full-time for him, everyone works full-time for him, I mean, um, but I said to the boss, look here, yeah, I'm going to go. He actually offered me double the salary and said, what can we do to keep you? And I said, no, no. God has called me. I'm, I'm moving on. And um, I'll never forget his words. He actually took a piece of paper, he put it in front of me, and he said, these are the things that we're going to change in this company. Because for all of these years that you were praying, I realized you and that mechanic I knew about you praying for this company. And because you prayed, God prospered this company. I just want to thank you. But here are the things we're going to change to make it more a more godly company. 300, 400 people working there. Even the unbeliever knew, unbeliever knew that we were praying. said, because of your praise, there's peace in this place. Can people say that about us as a church? Can people say that about you living in that neighborhood? So I encourage you, just when you go walk in your neighborhood, just once a week, walk up and down the street. Say, God, I pray. God, I pray for this street. I pray for this neighborhood. Start prayer walking. Start standing in the gap. Say, God, I want everybody in this neighborhood to know that you are God. I want revival in my heart. I want revival in their hearts. See, then revival isn't a loaded thing. It's people knowing that God is God. And there's going to be a cost. Yes, Jesus said it. He said in Matthew 16, verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, this is when Peter said, you're not going to go to the cross. You're not going to do that way. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Whoo, Jesus, don't say those words to me. I never want to be an offense to you. But then he defined why Peter's statement was an offense. He says, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. There are, there's a church that's mindful about the things of God. And then there's a church that are mindful about the things of men. There's a church that want to please God and there's a church that want to please people. And because of Peter's influence and coming to Jesus, says, you're not going to go to the cross. This isn't, this isn't the way of God. This can't be... How can you die now on us? No, 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 no. There's some stuff that needs to happen. You know, you're going to rule the Romans. You're going to take over the world. You need to be the reigning Messiah. And, 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 and 
I'm going to just put you in place, Jesus. There's no way you can go to the cross. And then Jesus says, that influence, get behind me. It offends me. God can be offended because we become mindful of the things of men and not the things of God. Is that hard? Scripture. And then Jesus comes and says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's in that context that Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. Sure. Mindful of the things of God, or are you mindful of the things of man? His own disciples were challenged by that. I'm challenged by that. Because many times I'm mindful of the things of the church. I'm worried about things that I should not worry about. Lord, what, how's this going to happen? Lord, where are we going to get that space? And Lord, where are we going to this, that? And then the Lord says, hey, I'm in control. Yeah, but Lord, you, you, you don't seem to, to know my situation. <laughs> you know, Lord, have, have you not heard my prayers? You know, um, and then we pray out of fear. We pray out of like, uh, Lord, have you noticed that um, South Africa is a bit in trouble? You know, when, when we, we all pray like that. Oh, Lord, have you noticed that Peter really, really needs an encounter with you today? Lord, have, have, you, have you noticed? As if God has not noticed. <laughs> but see, see, then we'd pray from a position where it's not our hearts that we're rendering to God. Our prayer should change. God, you are God in Peter's life. And what must I do to be obedient? <laughs> to create an opportunity where he can know that you are truly God. Suddenly your prayer life begins to change because now you don't pray out of fear for South Africa or you don't pray out of fear for your family. You pray out of the will of God because you pray from God. You don't pray to God. You heard the sound of rain. I can just imagine he's the guy who came to help him. Elijah. <coughs> One, two, three. Four, five, six. This is the seventh time. I know seven is a biblical number, Elijah, but um, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing. You obviously heard wrongly, Elijah. But the seventh time he says, oh, I saw a little cloud. I, I, I saw a little cloud. And Elijah says, that's enough. The rain is coming. Go tell the king, stop partying. Time is over. He needs but there's a cost involved. That cost is not to be mindful of the things of men, but the things of God. A lot of churches today are building the church around the opinion of people and the fear of man and wanting to please people. I'm going to say it with a lot of respect, but we are not here. Shofar Stellenbosch is not here to please you. We're not here to build a nice crowd. There's nice coffee. There's nice all this stuff. Nice all these things. But it means nothing without the presence of God. We are here to please God. And you're welcome to join us. We're imperfect people trying to follow God. But our desire is to say, He is God. He is God. Stellenbosch, He is God. Stellenbosch, He is God. Stellenbosch, He is God. You know, I was playing a bit of tennis yesterday and there was this bunch of liberal students sitting next to We were playing right next to this... Um, 
flat blocks here on campus. And I've never heard such liberal talking. Two groups. You cannot, most older people, if they know what's going on on this campus, they would like not send their kids. You know? This has turned completely liberal, entitlement, every ism is going, gender fluidity, everything. To be a Christian on campus is a massive challenge today. And I was actually, I walked away then, I thought like, I'm just playing tennis, but I feel so defiled because I hear every conversation, what these people, just the sexual impurity stuff they're talking about. That's not a group. There's girls and guys, everyone's sitting there and they're drinking and then they're talking about this and they're talking about that and they're blaspheming God and just all over the show. And I'm sitting there again, I think like, yo, I feel actually defiled, but you know what, God? You are God. Bring revival in our town. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.